Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Institute for Government. Welcome to all those who are joining us here in the room and to those who are joining us online. My name's Hannah White, and I'm director of the IFG. And I'm delighted that this afternoon we are welcoming Anna Sawa, MSP, who is leader of Scottish Labour Party, uh, for an In Conversation event with me here today. A little bit about Anna, although I'm sure everyone who's here uh, is, uh, uh, knows these details. Um, he was first elected as an MSP in Glasgow in 2016, after previously being an MP in Westminster and served in the shadow cabinet as Scottish Labour's health and social care spokesman and constitution spokesperson uh, before being elected leader of the party in 2021. Um, since taking charge of Labour, the political landscape in Scotland has of course changed. Um, calls for an independence <coughs> referendum from the governing SNP have failed to materialise. Scotland has a new first minister uh, in Hamza Youssef, and of course, as illustrated by the Rutherglen and Hamilton West by-election, current polling indicates that Scottish Labour stands to gain several seats in the upcoming general election. So what might a future Labour government at Westminster mean for relations with Holyrood? Where might the future of devolution be headed? And what is the Scottish Labour Party's vision for Scotland's place in a reformed union? These are all some of the questions that I'll be discussing with Anna today. Then we will uh, move to questions from the audience. We'll be taking questions from the room. Uh, if you're next door, feel free to pop your head in when we get to the question uh, time. Um, and if you're online, please send in your questions via Slido, and I'll be taking those via my iPad. We'll be tweeting, uh, or doing whatever you do now, Xing, um, uh, from IFG events uh, using the hashtag IFGSawa. So please do follow and tweet along uh, if you uh, like to do that sort of thing. And we'll have a video and sound recording of the event on our website shortly afterwards. So I think that's all the uh, preliminaries out of the way. So turn to the interesting bit and the actual conversation. So um, to start with the, uh, the, the highest level politics, Scottish Labour's lost votes and seats mm. at every single devolved election since 1999. What are you as leader doing about that? Well, first of all, Hannah, it's an absolute pleasure um, to be here. Thank you for the uh, introduction. You missed out the part about being the dentist and all the oh, usual, yeah. usual <laughs> dental jokes I get in, in normally every introduction. And thank you to those that have taken the time to come and uh, listen to us today. I think the first thing to say, and it's really, really important, uh, and I made this point from the moment I became leader and I've said it ever since, is I am not one of those leaders that believes that we were always right and the electorate were wrong. Uh, the harsh reality and the truth is uh, we lost election after election because we weren't good enough and we didn't deserve to win and we deserved to lose. And I think unless we recognise that we were wrong, not the electorate, uh, that is not a right way of us moving forward. And so I say that straight off the bat. Um, and my first task when I became leader, it was to one, set that really uh, that out in clear terms. Uh, second, apologize for the fact that we hadn't been good enough for a very, very long time. Uh, and to make a promise that with hard work and humility, we would reach out and try to give people in Scotland a Labour Party they deserved and that was worthy of the name. Uh, and I think over the course of the last two years, if you look at where we were to where we are now, we have made huge, huge strides, but I'll be the first to say feet on the ground, we've still got lots more work to do. So two years ago, only 8% of people in Scotland said they would definitely vote Labour in, a, in an election. We were polling at around 14 to 16%. We were 32 points behind the SNP 
We were up against a First Minister who had an approval rating of plus 52 uh, points, which is an incredible uh, figure. Organisationally, we were really weak. We were only reaching around 40,000 people a week on our digital platforms as compared to the SNP that was reaching around 1.5 million people a week across their digital platforms every week for the 18 months leading up to that Scottish Parliament election. And in the 12 months prior to becoming leader, we'd only raised £250 in terms of our fundraising operations. So it, it yeah, shows you... better than that. <laughs> Indeed. So you can, you can see how how big a challenge that was that we came into. Two years on, we've won our first parliamentary by-election uh, in over 12 years. Uh, we have a swing of over 20% uh, to Labour from the SNP, and we got more than double the SNP shared the vote in the Rutherglen-Hamilton West by-election. Of course, an incredible transformation. Of course, um, a huge leap forward in terms of demonstrating that Scotland can lead the way in delivering a UK Labour government. Uh, but the promise I make to people in this room and right across the country is I'm not the kind of person that says that basks in individual bits of glory or enjoys it and overplays it. We have still got a mountain to climb. We've still got a hell of a lot of work to do. And with the same energy, humility and hard work we've demonstrated in the last two years, we promise we're going to do that every day between now and the next general election and the next Scottish Parliament election and beyond. So we earn people's trust, earn their support and have been worthy of being in government again. And what would you say... What do you think has made the difference to those voters? If you take those voters in Rutherglen, what is it that you think that they are voting for now that they wouldn't vote for previously? So, so I think a, a few things. Uh, I think, first of all, we've got a serious Labour Party again. So the task I had was to change the Labour Party the exact same way that Keir Starmer's had that task across the UK in the last three years. I've had that task in Scotland for the last two years, uh, is to change the Labour Party. <clears throat> we are in a close relationship because UK Labour needed Scottish Labour to be better in order to win the states required to deliver a UK Labour government and Scottish Labour needed UK Labour to be better to demonstrate that UK Labour could beat the Conservatives and therefore there was a point for voting Labour in Scotland or indeed right across the UK. So, so we had to change the Labour Party. We then had to be a credible opposition and get people to uh, understand the failures of both governments. Now, I'm not going to pretend we've done all that work ourselves. Both governments have helped us a great deal <laughs> in recent years to, to help emphasise uh, that, that point, both in terms of the Tory economic carnage we see across the UK or the failures of the Scottish Government, particularly in the National Health Service as well as the cost of living crisis uh, in Scotland. And then the third part is to present ourselves as a credible alternative. And for me, the strategy has always been, from day one, is firstly be the grown-ups in the room. We have two divisive governments, two divisive political figures. Be the grown-ups in the face of that. Secondly is own change. And I think when people haven't believed Labour could win, they've thought that there's only change on offer as perhaps independence or as perhaps the SNP, is to own change. And I think Scottish Labour is now firmly the party of change in Scotland. And third is to be distinctly Scottish. And that is to say that we have one protecting devolution, standing up for Scotland's role in, in the UK, but also the institutions in Scotland, and being proud of that heritage and not giving that up over to the nationalists as if they alone have ownership of our institutions, our, our uh, cultural symbols, or indeed our flag. And I think that's been really, really uh, important. But I think the challenge we still face, and I think it's always important for us to challenge ourselves, 
I think the public has decided they want the Tories to lose. And I think the public is, is beginning to decide that they want the SNP to lose. And I think they believe that the SNP and the Tories deserve to lose. I think we still have work to do for them to believe that Labour deserves to win. And that, I think, is the big challenge for us, is how we do hope as well as change and a platform in Scotland and across the UK between now and the next general election that says, of course we want to elect Scottish Labour MPs because it helps get rid of a UK Tory government, but actually you're electing Scottish Labour MPs not just to make up the numbers or get Labour over the line, you're electing Scottish Labour MPs so they're there to stand up for Scotland, deliver change and reset devolution. And I'm sure we'll cover some of that in, in more detail. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to move on to the next general election because clearly, as you say, um, what you're trying to do with the Labour Party in Scotland is intimately linked with what Keir Starmer's trying to do in Westminster. <coughs> And, you know, at the, at the moment, we only have the same number of Labour MPs in Scotland as we do pandas. Mm. So um, you'll be wanting to increase that, that number. What is it that you think uh, Scottish Labour needs to convince voters of in Scotland that potential uh, um, Scottish Labour MPs would do for them in Westminster? So, again, a couple of things. First is, I should be really upfront about it. Um, I see the UK general election and the election of Keir Starmer as Prime Minister as a stepping stone to the election in 2026 rather than the end game. And I'm just upfront about it and I'm upfront about it with, with Keir and upfront about it with UK Labour colleagues. I don't believe there's a route to a Scottish Labour government that doesn't involve <coughs> Keir Starmer being Prime Minister and Labour winning the next general election. So for me, that is that stepping stone. Secondly, of course, I think it's enough for us to say to a lot of people in Scotland, vote Labour so we can get rid of this Tory government. And that will take us some part of the journey, but I don't think it gets us to the place that we need to get to if we are going to make some really, really super significant gains in Scotland. And therefore, I think people can now see, following particularly the Selby by-election, of course, the Tamworth and Midbeds by-election, but also the Rutherland-Hamilton West by-election, that Labour has the ability to win in every part of the country again. And the message that I, I want to deliver to people, and I'm saying really, really hard to Keir and his team, and to be fair to them, they, they get, is we have to demonstrate that voting for Scottish Labour is for a wider purpose. And that wider purpose is, first of all, is how do you have MPs here that are, are there to stand up for their community and so are therefore leveraging and delivering for Scotland? Secondly, how do you turn the Scotland office uh, in on itself? So right now it feels like the Scotland office is draped in a, a union jack and is there to be the eyes and ears of the UK government in Scotland rather than fighting Scotland's corner across the UK. We would fundamentally change the Scotland office where it would be draped in the saltire and be, the, be Scotland's voice across the UK and there to be the delivery unit for Scotland to make sure every single department is delivering for, for Scotland. So we would change the frame of, of the Scotland office. Third, we would reset devolution. And I think this is probably one of the single biggest uh, and most important things that we can do in 2024 and 2026. I honestly believe we can end the era of division in 24 and 26. Because I think the frustration is as the architects of devolution as the party of devolution, sadly over the last 13 to 15 years, 
devolution has not has lost what it was in terms of its founding principles, and it has felt that devolution is about two governments fighting with each other and failing Scotland, rather than two governments cooperating with each other and delivering for Scotland. And that's why we would fundamentally reset what devolution is, take it back to its founding principles and values, and make sure through cooperation, not conflict, we are maximising the delivery for Scotland as we lead towards that next Scottish Parliament election. And the, and the final point, sorry, Hannah, is the other thing we're thinking a lot about is I want to be fighting that election in 2026 in the midterm of a popular Labour government that's delivering for Scotland, not the midterm of an unpopular Labour government that people have a frustration with. And that's why the hard work's already started about what we want to be implementing in Scotland in the early days of a Labour government so people can see what that change looks like in practice. And one practical example of that is, of course, GB Energy, headquartered in Scotland, something that we fought for and won the argument on because we want to make Scotland that beating powerhouse of that green energy revolution, not just to be leaders across the UK, but actually to leverage in global leadership and export that skill and that talent to the rest of the world. Can I dig into that answer a Please. little bit? When you talk about sort of taking devolution back to its, its principles and, and, and restoring devolution in a sense, what is it you're actually looking for uh, to change in that way. I mean, we can talk about sort of a greater culture of cooperation, yep. and obviously that's easier if there are more uh, Labour um, Scottish MPs, and you know, obviously in 2026, if 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 you had a better outcome there. But how is it going to be more than warm words? So I, I think that the first thing to say is that we have to accept that every layer of our government and every layer of our democracy is broken, and that's why we need fundamental reform of the Lords the House of Commons, the Scottish Parliament, and local authorities and local government across the country. So we've got to have fundamental reform of all of it. I think the one uh, warning sign that I would send, though, is you can have the best devolution model in the world. If you have bad faith actors, you will still see conflict that fails Scotland. And the tragedy right now is we have two bad faith actors. We've got bad faith actors on both sides. You've got a UK government that doesn't actually believe in devolution and therefore undermines it on a regular basis. And you have a Scottish government that believes devolution is a game. Ultimately, they don't believe in devolution either. I want to use it as a conflict to try and argue for a different constitutional position. And so therefore, I think as part of... So I can go into the individual layers of reform if you, if you wish. But I think the, the first thing is making a legal duty of cooperation for our governments, I think, is really, really important. And I think the challenge is going to be set if we win the next UK general election. The Scottish government's going to have a choice. Um, we're going to reset devolution. Um, we're going to try to work in cooperation to deliver for the people of Scotland. And the SNP is going to have a choice. They can either choose to continue to throw bricks at a UK Labour government that's trying to deliver for Scotland, or they can recognise that they need to cooperate to try and maximise the, the opportunities and benefits for Scotland. And I think that'll be really, really interesting to see what way they go when it comes to that. But in terms of our own thinking, we've got to have a legal duty to cooperate. We have to strengthen the status of the Scottish Parliament. That means giving the same protections to our MSPs as our MPs currently have, partly around, for example, parliamentary privilege, etc. We have to strengthen the transparency 
of our parliaments. We often have debates across the UK and in Scotland about the lack of transparency from our UK Tory government. If we're honest with ourselves, there's a real stark lack of transparency amongst our Scottish governments, how we strengthen, for example, FOI laws, how we ban uh, second jobs, how we have a right of recall, something that's worked really well uh, in, across the UK, how we have a right of recall in, in our Scottish Parliament, uh, how we have greater sanctions around those that breach the ministerial code, uh, in Scotland, how we have greater independence around the oversight of that ministerial code. All of that, I think, is really, really uh, important. How we can have greater international cooperation. So I, I want to see, why can't we see a Scottish government and a Scottish parliament looking to sign international agreements where it's in our uh, interests around trade, around cooperation? I think there's a real powerful part uh, to play there. Why can't there be stronger Scottish representation around our trade infrastructure, our foreign office infrastructure, our international development infrastructure, uh, as well as, uh, as, well as wider, wider afield uh, around immigration. Why not having greater Scottish representation and voice around, uh, around that? All of that I think we need to do. And then in terms of the individual layers of government, we have got to reform the House of Lords and make it a more representative of the nations and regions of the UK. That includes regions within Scotland, uh, and it's got to be a democratic institution. Is that a first term issue? Look, for me, absolutely. I, I think that you have your greatest political capital and your greatest ability to do big, bold, radical reform in your first term than you do in your second term. And I think the last Labour government is a good example of that. And so I think if we're going to do big, brave reforms, we should be brave enough to do them in, in the first parliament rather than waiting for uh, the second parliament. So we've got, we've got to be reform around that. House of Commons uh, needs reform. We've got to push power out of the House of Commons. We've got to push our civil service and our institutions right across the country rather than sucking them up uh, purely uh, in London. That means strengthening, of course, our nations, but it also means strengthening our regions around economic powers. And then in the, in the Scottish Parliament, how do we push power out of the Scottish Parliament as well? This idea that somehow we only have a centralising, sucking up mechanism in Westminster, but everything's great in Holyrood. Speak to any local councillor, whether that be Labour or SNP or Tory, eh, they would tell you that themselves. We've got a centralising government in, in Holyrood, pushing power out of Holyrood to our local authorities, to the regions and, and the regional powerhouses of Scotland, I think is also going to be really, really important. So if you became First Minister in 2026, would you be committing to creating uh, you know, Scottish equivalent of Andy Burnham? Um, well, I, look, I think, I think the Greater Manchester is a really good example. And what always strikes me is, I remember during COVID, when the UK government was imposing more stringent uh, lockdowns on Manchester than the rest of England, that really powerful image of Andy Burnham with all the council leaders across Greater Manchester standing together and saying with one voice, that they were being unfairly dealt with, it was going to impact on jobs and opportunities in Greater Manchester, and it made national news. There was actually a period shortly after that where Glasgow had more stringent measures around COVID than the rest of Scotland. Where was Glasgow's voice in that in terms of fighting our corner? And I think that in really stark terms demonstrated that lack of local identity in Scottish politics that the SNP is really you know, centralised. And so I, I like the ideas of, uh, of regional mayors uh, in Scotland, but ultimately that will have to be a decision for local authorities and local people. What I would definitely like to see, though, is greater cooperation and working with local authorities and regional local authorities and creating regional economic powerhouses. 
Why can't we have a Glasgow, West of Scotland economic powerhouse the way we have a Greater Manchester? Why can't we have an Edinburgh and Lothian's economic powerhouse like we see with Greater uh, Liverpool? And, and same with uh, the powerhouse around the North East with Aberdeen and uh, Dundee as two leading cities, as well as then something specific around our island communities who feel really distant and remote, just as distant and remote actually from Holyrood as they do from Westminster. And I think thinking about it that way is where I think there are huge, huge opportunities for us in Scotland. So decentralisation of power is one thing you would do if you were um, First Minister. I mean, the IFG thinks a lot about how to make government more effective. Are there other reforms you would like to see within the Scottish government? Um, uh, you've talked about FOI, transparency, those sorts of things, but anything else that you so, would... Yeah, so, yeah, so a number of things. So if you remember when we had... It goes back to cooperation again. If you think about when we had the last UK Labour government and we had Jack McConnell as our First Minister in, in Scotland, he was able to maintain the integrity of a single UK border agency, a single UK immigration system, but negotiate a tailored immigration system around the Fresh Talent Scheme that addressed a skills issue that we particularly had uh, in Scotland. And there's no reason why we can't have something like that again if you have two governments that are willing to cooperate and work together, so that's, that's one part. Secondly, around uh, borrowing, uh, you know, local authorities in many cases have much, much more significant borrowing powers than the Scottish Parliament does. Um, so we have to look at how we enhance the ability around borrowing in Scotland. But given the economic carnage we face, of course it has to be cognizant of and consistent with the economic rules being set out by uh, Rachel Reeves, our Shadow Chancellor, because that is the economically competent and right thing for us to do. But I think there is scope uh, for us to look around that. And then more economic powers, um, is how do we strengthen the economic powers uh, in, in our country, uh, particularly in the regions that allow us to maximise those opportunities. I think there are huge, huge opportunities. And I honestly think if you end the era of division, and you get the frame of mind to completely turn on its head, where the job of a government minister is not to, where can I find the issues that I can have a fight with somebody about? And instead, where can I find the areas where I can work with somebody to deliver for Scotland? That single psychological change could be enormous for how we deliver public policy in Scotland. And you've talked there about um, decisions you would make looking forward, but what about looking back? I mean, you talk about some of the um, conflict and division that there has undoubtedly been between uh, Westminster and Holyrood. What about the UK Internal Market Act, for example? Would you look to repeal um, it or presumably more likely parts of it in terms of the financial assistance powers, those sorts of things? Well, look, there's, there's lots in that. And I think the, the first thing to say is that you have, and we have to be honest about it, you have a deliberate undermining of devolution from this UK Tory government. And that deliberate undermining of devolution weakens every single part of our UK, um, including Scotland, including the na other nations and regions of, of the UK. And we will have to, of course, reset devolution. I think that's absolutely crucial and a firm commitment around resetting devolution. We'll also have to fix the mess of Brexit. So that, that doesn't mean rehashing the Brexit referendum, rerunning the Brexit referendum, but fixing the mess Finding where, it, where it's in our national interest to cooperate with the European Union, we should, we should be relaxed about doing that. Where there are areas of alignment that we agree on, we should be pursuing those areas of alignment. And where there is disalignment but we want to find uh, common ground, we should have a proper process of negotiation to find that common ground as part of fixing the Brexit mess. 
So that's resetting devolution, resetting the relationship with the European Union, and then being much, much more relaxed about having different regional solutions and national solutions for different problems. And look at transport. Transport's a really good example of that. We've got the nationalisation of our rail network in Scotland. Sadly, still using the same failed uh, outcomes, not really looking at how we enhance the, the routes or enhance what we do with fares. You've got a public ownership of, or public control and ownership of our bus network, for example, in Lothians. You've seen that now being replicated in Greater Manchester with what Andy's doing around the, the B network. Is being much more, more relaxed about regional and local solutions to local problems rather than thinking we have to have a one-size-fits-all model. A one-size-fits-all model is not going to work for the UK and actually it's not going to work for Scotland either. The idea that the transport infrastructure we need in Glasgow is the same as the transport infrastructure they need between the mainland and the Western Isles is for the birds and you end up in the situation you are just now with the ferries fiasco. And so in the run into the next general election, building on that then, what are you going to do about the areas where you feel the policy that is right for Scotland is not the policy which Keir Starmer is uh, putting forward on part, but behalf of the UK Labour Party? Well, we're going to be true to our values and we'll be, we'll be straight up about it. Uh, and I think one of, the, one of the things that has fundamentally changed in terms of the relationship and the dynamic between uh, Keir and myself is I think you've probably got the closest working relationship of any UK leader and Scottish leader in any time since there's been devolution. Um, that is partly helped by what I said right at the start about us both recognising we both need each other to be successful if we want to ultimately uh, obtain our own uh, objectives and our own ambitions and for, both for ourselves but also for uh, the country even more uh, importantly. And so getting to a place where, where there is a difference in policy or a difference in approach doesn't become somehow some great divide. It's just about being honest and saying that's what devolution is. Um, we led the way, for example, in the smoking ban in Scotland, something that was then reflected in other parts of the UK. There's been leadership from other parts of the UK that we've then reflected and, and, and copied in, in Scotland. That's devolution. We should be absolutely relaxed about it. Okay, I'm gonna, one more question for me, and then no I'm going to come to questions on the floor and online. In what circumstances should Scotland be allowed to vote again on independence? I think ultimately it is the will of the Scottish people and the harsh reality that the SNP haven't accepted is people in Scotland don't want a referendum right now, but they want change. Uh, there isn't a majority for a referendum right now. There isn't a consistent majority for independence right now, but there is an overwhelming majority for change right now. And uh, Scottish Labour is being that vehicle and party of change so we can institute that change across the UK and indeed in Scotland. And I think it's also really important to, to make a uh, point here about people who have supported other parties in the past or even perhaps uh, support independence right now. I am not going to close my arms or shut my eyes to people who have voted for other political parties in the past or who have previously supported independence or maybe even continue to support independence because for so many of those people, what has driven them towards supporting independence is because they have thought the only escape route away from this rotten Tory government is perhaps voting SNP or voting for independence. And so I say to people, I'm really upfront about my own position. I don't support independence. I don't support a referendum. We may ultimately disagree on the final destination for Scotland, but on this part of the journey, let's travel it together and allow us through our 
the Liberian government demonstrate to you that we can make devolution work and we can give you the change you want to see in your life and transform Scotland in the process. And so your uh, strategy then is to maintain numbers asking for another referendum or saying they would vote for independence below 50% and yeah. up until that, and, and to stop that happening so you can continue to argue there's not appetite for No, no, actually, I, I actually think, I think about Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon going into the 2000 election in Scotland when there was an overwhelming opposition to independence. They didn't go into that election thinking that they had to change their position on the constitution in order to win the election. What they said to people was, you may disagree with us on our central uh, objective, our central destination, but you can agree that it's time for a change and allow us through our delivery in government, persuade you on independence. And I think the tragedy of that strategy, which worked for them, don't get me wrong, in terms of keeping them in government now for 16 coming on 17 years, by the end of this parliament, almost 20 years. But I think now that is not the approach uh, of Nicola Sturgeon in her final uh, months, or indeed of Hamza Yusuf. The argument for independence is no longer through our delivery, through our record in government, we are going to deliver independence and persuade you on independence. Their argument for the last two years, three years has been because of how horrible the UK Tory government is, we now need independence. And if we can demonstrate to people that we can get rid of this Tory government, we can change, uh, have delivered change across the country, we can reset devolution and we can deliver on your priorities right now, we can then, I think, persuade people further down the road. But in terms of looking at those numbers right now, genuinely, it doesn't bother me because I think people are free to express their view, they're entitled to that view. My job as a leader of a political party, my job as someone who aspires to be First Minister of Scotland is to try and persuade those people uh, and to work with them that there's an alternative form of change and we can be that change. Thank you. Um, I'm going to take questions in groups of two or three. Uh, my colleague has a mic, uh, so we'll take a set of questions first from the room. There's a lady here on... There, Could you uh, tell us your name and where you're from? Uh, Hattie Simpson, A-level student. Um, you've spoken about reform of institutions and the idea of efficiency being a key goal of this. Recognising that there is almost record low levels of public engagement with politics and that being a key element of democracy, what, how, what role will public engagement play as a value in the reforms you intend to put in place? Great. Thank you. There's a gentleman at the front here. Uh, hi, uh, Richard um, from the Embassy of Japan, but asking more on my own volition. Um, I was wondering perhaps, um, in the event that you have a Scottish Labour government in charge and a UK Labour government, uh, is there a fear of perhaps uh, seeing perhaps a clear red water between the two, as we've seen with the Welsh government and Blair? Um, particularly on issues such as the European Union uh, and gender recognition reform. Thank you. Thank you. And the gentleman here. David Porter, BBC. Um, Annis, it seems as though you have to deliver in Scotland if Keir Starmer is to get into number 10. And secondly, how concerned are you that members of the Scottish Labour Party are resigning over Labour's national stance on Israel and Gaza and the conflict there. 
Thank you. Uh, Hattie, on, um, look, let's just be honest about it. We have had a politics now across the UK where you know, people have always said uh, that um, politicians are in it for themselves or they don't reflect our priorities. But actually, if you look at the state of UK and Scottish politics over the last five to six years in particular, and probably in a much sharper sense the last two or three years, it doesn't feel like there's a principle of integrity, honesty, decency or morality any longer in our politics. And unless we can fundamentally change that, you are going to continue to see apathy from people across the country and it's only then going to be amplified by uh, the cost of living crisis, the economic crisis, an NHS crisis, and also social media, which is amplifying that um, division uh, in a much, much more stark way. And so I think, of course, uh, Labour has to stand on a platform of change around delivering economic growth, around reforming um, our National Health Service, around resetting the relationship between the UK government, the Scottish government, the Welsh government, uh, re-strengthening in uh, our uh, structures around devolution, but it's also fundamentally got to get decency, integrity, honesty and morality back into our politics. And one of the frustrations that I have right now with both our governments is I honestly think part of the strategy of both governments is get people so disengaged and so enraged with politics and not believing that politics can fundamentally deliver change that that in itself turns people away and perhaps it helps them mitigate some of the results that might happen come the next election. And that's why I think the Labour Party's strategy for the election has to be driven by three words, empathy, unity and hope. We have got to speak an empathetic language in that election compared to the anger that's going to come from the Conservatives and from the SNP. We have to have a message of unity that's about pulling our country together, regardless of which part of the country it is, as opposed to the divisive language you're going to have from both the SNP and the Tories. And we've got to give this country hope, because I don't believe Labour can win an election unless it amplifies hope in the face of despair, which is what they're going to get the message from uh, the Conservatives and the SNP. So those three words, I think, have to be the watchwords for how we run that general election campaign, empathy, unity uh, and hope. Uh, Richard, on the question around uh, clear red water, actually I, I think um, the Welsh Labour Party probably doesn't get the level of credit it deserves in terms of that clear red water approach. I would say they probably, it was a bit easier for them to do, um, given that, uh, you know, one figure in particular, but lots of figures in the last Labour government were significant Labour politicians from Scotland and so it was much much more difficult when you had the Chancellor being a Scot and then the Prime Minister being a Scot for you to say there is clear red water between a Labour Party in Scotland and a UK Labour Party, Welsh Labour weren't in that same uh, position. But I think the clear red water strategy is the correct one but it can't be manufactured divisions or disagreements purely to try and play a game with the electorate. You'll get found out and it won't work. It has to be based on 
Scottish solutions to Scottish problems and respecting each other's uh, authority, respecting each other's role and position and recognising that that's what devolution was meant to be all about, is, is having that different approach uh, across the country. Um, and David, your question on um, the, first of all, in terms of Labour's role, um, I have always said, even when people thought that we weren't in the game, that there is no route to a Labour government that doesn't go through Scotland. Um, I believe, I've always believed, and to be fair to Keir, he's always believed, many of our colleagues in the rest of the UK and in Scotland perhaps haven't believed it, but I think they're believing it now, is that Scotland is going to lead the way in delivering a UK Labour government. We are not going to be a drag on the ticket. We are not going to be electing Scottish Labour MPs to just make up the numbers and get us over the line. We are going to have a programme for change that is about electing a strong cohort of Labour MPs who are going to go to Westminster to stand up for Scotland, to deliver for Scotland and to reset that relationship between Scotland and the rest of the UK. On the question you ask about um, the horrific situation in Israel and Palestine, First of all, I'm not going to trivialise the scale of that dispute around what's happening in individual um, CLPs or individual um, CLP executive members. To be honest, the conflict's bigger than that. And anyone that wants to play those kind of games, frankly, I've got no time for it. Uh, and instead, I'm going to focus on the principles. And the principles of this uh, are really, really significant and important. Right now, you have the citizens of Israel and the citizens of Palestine living in fear fearing for their lives, fearing for their children, and having no kind of hope or light for peace. And that has got tragic, tragic consequences for people in Israel and in Palestine. And I think my biggest plea would be, we have got to try and emphasize with humanity that every life has to be seen as equal. If, it, if the impression comes that an Israeli life and a Palestinian life aren't treated as equal, then you have lost the uh, high ground and you've lost the ability to be the advocates of peace uh, in that way. So we have to unequivocally condemn Hamas for the horrific terror uh, attacks uh, on Israel. Uh, and we have to stand in complete solidarity with our Jewish community, both here in the UK, but also those fearing for their lives in Israel and, or indeed under threat from anti-Semitism and, and right around the world. We've got to stand shoulder to shoulder with them and unequivocally condemn Hamas. But we also, as people who believe in human rights, who believe in the equal value of life, we have to stress that Hamas is not the Palestinian people and there is no justification for the loss of innocent life. There is no justification for the targeting of civilians and there is no justification for the collective punishment of 2.2 million citizens in Gaza. And that's why we have to have an immediate release of hostages. There has to be immediate access to humanitarian aid. There has to be food, electricity and water. And let's be clear, international law is not a great area on this. Withholding electricity water and emergency supplies is a breach of international law. We should be really, really clear about that. We have to stop rocket fire and have a de-escalation, de rockets coming out of Gaza and rockets going into Gaza. And ultimately, we have to get back to a peace process because the tragedy is there is no peace and there is no process. And until we can get a genuine peace process where the violence stops, 
where every life is treated as equal and we have an end to illegal occupation and an end to illegal siege, we will not see what we need to see, which is a peaceful, sovereign, free Israel and a peaceful, sovereign and free Palestine. Okay, we'll take another set of questions. Maddie, there's a lady on the aisle just here. Thanks, and uh, good to see you here today, Annas. I'm Pauline Bryan, I'm a, a Labour peer who's uh, worked over the past 10, 15 years on trying to get the House of Lords reformed. No, <coughs> abolished. Um, <laughs> You said it could be a first-term commitment. I'm not seeing any evidence of that, certainly not in the Labour group in the House of Lords, so I hope you can push that, because unless it's a first-term commitment, we may as well give up on it. I mean, unless we have things in place that can ensure that you keep in Scotland immigration, borrowing powers, economic powers, and I would add, employment law to that list uh, under a first-term Labour government, then one day there will be a Tory government back in power and we will lose all these things again, as we did with the internal market and the strikes bill and others. So could you explain your um, conviction that we can make this a first-term commitment? Um, gentleman behind on the aisle. Hi, Dave Penman from the FDA. Um, and I do you agree with Steve Baker that major constitutional change should require a greater majority than 50% plus one? <laughs> You're trying to get a headline out of that, Dave, aren't you? <laughs> Maddie, can you get the gentleman behind? Yeah. Hi, my name's Brendan. I work at SSC, the FTSE 100 energy company headquartered in Scotland. Um, so, Anna, she spoke about a reset of devolution, and I wondered whether, as part of that, you see sort of further energy powers coming from Westminster to Holyrood. And a quick supplementary question on how would you see GB Energy specifically to be headquartered in Scotland, like us, working specifically with the Scottish Government, given it will be something that's established in Westminster? Uh, three really important questions. Um, so I think the you have your maximum political capital, I said it earlier on, in the early days of a, of a new government. And if you are going to do big, significant reform, I think you need to do it early in the, in the first term. I'm, I'm, I'm really clear about that. Of course, there has to be a proper engagement. There has to be proper consultation. Of course, all of those things need to happen. My challenge I would set, and I think actually the appointment of, of Sue Gray is an, an, is an indication of this, is the easy part, I think, of being in opposition and preparing for government is setting out the policy position. The harder part is when it hits the reality of when you're actually in government and you're faced with lots of questions from civil servants uh, like Dave represents, um, then how does, how does that policy and that pledge meet with reality and then you're able to deliver it? And the challenge I would set, and I've set myself, I know Keir has set himself, and I know Sugri is setting every shadow cabinet member now is, okay, you've set the policy priority, you've set the policy, now let's smash it against reality and see how we're actually going to deliver it. And I think we should be doing that with, with every policy, including uh, around, around Lord's reform. I think it's an important part of uh, renewing our democratic uh, infrastructures, and I think it's an important part of 
getting a greater stay, uh, greater say and a greater status for the nations and the regions of the UK. So uh, I'll continue to push for that to happen uh, as soon as practically possible. Dave, I'm going to avoid getting into the, the Steve Baker headline. The one thing I would say about it, though, is I think if there's one big lesson from that is con consistent with both the independence referendum and the Brexit referendum is the idea that you have the referendum, you pit people into two entrenched uh, camps, and then the day after the world returns to the way it was before is not, is not right. And I think the big challenge we've had, both with the independence referendum and the Brexit referendum, is the strongest proponents for both had a plan and a strategy to get to the referendum, they had a plan and a strategy to try and win those referendums, but neither one of them had a plan of how you heal the country after those referendums. And we're seeing the pain eh, of the lack of a healing process bear out in the last number of years. And therefore, you know, and, and invariably referendums become about lots of issues rather than just the issue that's actually the individual question on that ballot paper. And I have always been a politician that is more interested in pulling people together rather than pulling people apart. And I'm much more interested about how we change the way we do that politics and persuade people of other forms of change rather than thinking about arbitrary numbers around what any future referendums on any issue might look like and what the, and what the thresholds should be for, for any of those individual referendums. Brendan, on, on energy powers, there's already significant powers in terms of the, both the Scottish Government and the UK Government around what we can do around our energy infrastructure. I think the biggest frustration will be, and you'll probably feel this most coming from that background and lots of workers in the front line feel, is we've had, and it goes back actually to the very first question we had around people's demoralisation with, with politics, is we've had promise after promise, year after year, about the opportunities that come from the Green Revolution uh, across the UK and in Scotland. Don't forget the Saudi Arabia of renewables we were promised when Alex Salmond was uh, First Minister or indeed all the promises we've seen uh, from either this UK Tory government or indeed from Nicola Sturgeon and now from Hamza Youssef. And I think the challenge we have set ourselves, and this is partly why GB Energy is so important, is one, it's not about saying we're going to nationalise our energy sector and that's why we want to introduce GB Energy, it's actually the opposite. It's recognising that having skin in the game and having being a partner with your own, putting your money where your mouth is, being a partner with a private enterprise, using that public money to leverage in even more support from the private sector, and then saying, because we've got skin in the game, you know our priorities are not going to change, you know we're not going to be distracted, and you know we're going to help you break down some of the barriers, both in terms of grid infrastructure and also around planning, which so often holds a lot of these things up. We are going to work together to actually deliver it and make it a, a reality. And that's a firm commitment you've got. Uh, and again, it goes back to the cooperation point. I would love to see, because oil and gas is going to play a really significant role in our energy sector for decades to come. I think it's really important to say that. I would love to see a UK government, a Scottish government, a publicly owned GB Energy and those oil and gas giants and indeed some of the smaller operators as well as a lot of those supply chain companies working hand in glove with a unified mission of what our objective is both in terms of jobs, in terms of bills, in terms of leadership and delivering energy security. I think honestly we have the chance to do something really, really special with it. and. 
um, although we've made the announcement, uh, although we've got the commitment around GB Energy, we're not pretending it's a done deal. We're not pretending that we can, we've got all the answers ourselves. We genuinely want to work with the sector to build up what those projects look like, to build up what the infrastructure looks like to deliver that. And that's something that is a, an open offer. I know we're having lots of engagement already, but an open offer to all those that are interested in delivering that clean energy revolution in our country. Okay, I'm going to take a couple of questions online. We've got a couple of questions about council tax. Yep. Uh, Kieran Andrews from The Times uh, says, in, Scott, in August, you wrote, Labour would scrap damaging council tax hikes. Do you therefore welcome Hamza Youssef's decision to freeze rates? And if we combine that with an anonymous question, uh, questioner who's asking what Scottish Labour would therefore do to create sustainable funding for councils, um, is there a fairer and more progressive system than council tax that you would like to see? Um, I'm going to take a question, another anonymous question, uh, who points out that you didn't specifically answer my question about the UK Internal Markets Act and what you're going to do with it. So I'm going to give you another go at that one. <laughs> and uh, Maddie, <laughs> uh, can you take the gentleman on the way there? Uh, hi, Anna. It's Trevor McFarlane from Culture Commons. We support the UK's creative and cultural sectors. Um, so you've really clearly, I think, articulated the, 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 the clear red water strategy might be useful in, in many ways. Um, and they touch on the sort of technical governance structural arrangements. But of course, the cultural life of citizens across mm. the UK doesn't require that clear red uh, water strategy and actually probably needs to be brought together. So I wonder if I might be really cheeky and ask you to paint the picture to tell the story of culturally what Scotland looks like in the United Kingdom under a Labour uh, UK government uh, and potentially a Labour Scottish government too. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'll just say them again in, in, in turn. I think the, I mean, it, it's striking actually where you had Nicola Sturgeon saying that her driving mission uh, was education. Um, her central mission, her driving mission was education. And then over the course of a number of years, it became very, very clear that she'd fundamentally failed on her driving mission. Uh, Hamza Youssef in his leadership election said progressive policies and progressive taxation was the central mission uh, of his uh, government and it's why Kate Forbes couldn't, for example, be in the, uh, in the cabinet because she fundamentally disagreed with him and he's dropped his central mission when the first time it's hit with reality in the middle of a cost of living crisis. And I imagine in no short uh, uh, part because of uh, the win in Rutherglen Hamilton West. So I think the local people of Rutherglen Hamilton West can probably take credit for the fact that there's not going to be a 22% increase uh, in council tax for one in four households across the country, which was a ludicrous policy uh, to begin with, particularly in the middle of a cost of living crisis. So I think it's right that they have scrapped those ludicrous plans. I think the challenge that um, we now have is in the frame of where local government has been decimated in the last 10 years and there is no fair funding model, there has to be a detailed set out of how it's going to be properly funded in order to allow services and jobs to be protected for local communities. Because where I differ from uh, Hamza Youssef and the SNP, of course, taking aside the ludicrous plans around council tax or indeed around income tax rises, and it's yet to be seen whether they'll scrap the plans of increasing council tax on those people uh, earning over £28,000 a year, which is not a, a high salary by, by any stretch of the imagination, particularly in these times. 
is I don't actually blame SNP councils or SNP councillors who are having to make some really difficult and horrific decisions in their local authorities because of the funding settlement that's been imposed on them by the, by the SNP over the last 10 years. I think there are SNP councillors, Labour councillors and councils right across the country who are having to make unthinkable, unwanted decisions and finding it really painful because that's not why they ultimately came into politics. They went into politics to deliver for the local community rather than to see a decimation of local services. So I don't blame any of them. I think the blame firmly lies with an SNP government that's got arrogant and out of touch and power that has not respected local government. And that's why we want to have a local democracy bill. Um, if we uh, win the election in 2026, we'd be to fundamentally protect and, and reset that relationship with uh, local government. Secondly, um, it's completely unacceptable that when the UK government uh, cut the Scottish government's budget, the Scottish government took that cut, multiplied it by three or four, and imposed that on local government. Or indeed, when the budget rises, uh, taking out, the, of course, the consequences around health, that they're not passing on those rises by a similar percentage to local government. So we want to institute a fair funding settlement that means if there is a rise in the Scottish government's budget, um, excluding those health consequentials, we should be passing on those rises to local government as well. And that fundamental reset is something that we are absolutely committed to do. What I'm not going to do though, and I'm really upfront about it, is the SNP have weakened every institution in Scotland over the last 16 years. I am not going to be able to fix their mess in a budget that's going to come at the end of this year. It's on them and the Greens to fix their mess. What I've got to focus on and what I'm telling my uh, front benchers to focus on is we're going to have to fix the mess in 2026. And what are the plans and the ideas that we need to introduce in 2026 that means we are fixing a mess that is 20 years in the making because that's when our responsibility will kick in. The responsibility now lies squarely with the SNP and the Greens, but that local democracy bill and that fair funding settlement is two key parts of what we'll be talking about in the read up to 2026. I didn't think I dodged the question on the Internal Market Act, but um, if, if you think I did, I, I, I apologize. I, I suppose I, I come at it from a pragmatic approach, which is, just like with our, the UK's relationship with the EU, we have got to find good faith actors on both sides to fix the mess, to reset the relationship, to have alignment when it's in our national interest and to negotiate where there is disalignment to make sure we're delivering for our country. I think the exact same principle has to apply for a Scottish government with a UK government is fix the mess that's been created by these two governments, reset the relationship, find where there is alignment that meets our national interests and where there is disagreement, find compromise that allows us to deliver effective government. That would be my approach in terms of a Scottish and, and a UK approach. So potentially repealing something that you feel has created... Well, look, as I say, if, if we feel as if there is a blockage to something that allows us to deliver effective government, we're going to be lobbying really hard and pushing really hard to, to fix that mess because I want us to deliver effective government both across the UK and in Scotland and I won't be afraid to, to argue that case and, and to do that because it's fundamentally important, both in terms of respecting devolution but also in terms of delivering for our local communities. And I suppose that kind of touches upon the, the cultural question, which I, th I actually think is a really, really important one. I think there's been this, um, I think there's been this impression and actually us vacating the, the stage and, and having our nervous breakdown in public 
as a political party probably um, helped feed into this, where there's been this battle in Scotland between those that wave a Union Jack and those that wave a saltire. And somehow if you wave a Union Jack, it means you're on the pro-UK side. And if you wave a saltire, it means you're on the pro-Scotland side. And you've got to pick a side. And if you pick your side on the Union Jack, it means you support the UK. And if you pick the saltire or Scotland, it means you support independence. Actually, I don't view it that way. We're all Team Scotland. Um, and um, I would always... Uh, be cognizant of and more proud of my Scottish identity even more than my, my British identity. I would probably say I'm a Glasgow nationalist, some would say, in terms of my local identity uh, as well. But where I think we have huge opportunity, um, and Scotland actually doesn't tap into it enough, is brand Scotland. There's something about Scotland's soft power where Scots can go anywhere in the world and they will invariably get a really positive response. And if we can tap into that soft power, the opportunities around trade, eh, around inward investment, export, around tourism are huge, eh, particularly around North America where there's a huge heritage of, of people eh, in Scotland. And we can learn many of the lessons from Ireland around some of their diaspora communities and how they leverage that around eh, tourism. So that brand Scotland approach, I think is a huge, huge opportunity for us. And that's something that as part of our growth plan for Scotland, um, we have set out three priorities in our growth plan for Scotland. First of all is maximising the opportunities of the Green Revolution. Secondly is around financial services and tech. And third is brand Scotland tourism. I think if we tap into that brand Scotland and go back to having a Scotland, which has always been a country that has been internationalist, not nationalist, has always punched well above its weight, <coughs> and has always looked outward rather than inward, if we go back to that kind of Scotland, I think the opportunities are enormous. Uh, and that's the kind of Scotland we want to build. Proud of our identity, proud of our background, proud of our, um, our heritage, but also really, really uh, determined and proud of where we think we can go as a country. And again, and finally, uh, just to touch upon this point, I think the other really interesting thing that's happened in Scottish politics over the last year is we used to be seen as the negative ones and the SNP were the positive. I think that's flipped totally in its head. We're now the positive, they're the negative. We're now the party of change, they're the party of the status quo. We're the party of pulling uh, our country together, they're the party of division. And we're now the party that believes Scotland's best days lie ahead of it. And they're the ones that talk down Scotland. That is a massive contrast in the last year. And I relish fighting the elections on that pitch because uh, I believe there is a mood for change in Scotland and I'm determined that Labour is that change. I think we're going to have to draw it to a close there. I'm sorry all those who haven't had time to get to your questions, but can I ask you all to uh, join me in thanking Anna's. Really a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.